At some point, we all have to come to terms with the fact that life isn't fair, don't we? I mean, you, you didn't get to choose your family, where you were born, where you grew up, how much money y'all had. You didn't get to really choose what you look like. And as we grow up, we start to find out, usually pretty early, that things don't always work out in our favor. Things don't always even out. I, I bet you've been blamed and punished for something you didn't do. I bet you've worked really hard on something only to watch somebody else get the credit for it. Because life isn't fair. We live in a world where, where cheaters sometimes do win. Where bad guys sometimes get away. They don't get caught. And the more we, we dwell on that reality, it's possible that we get angry and bitter and cynical over this, this bare fact of reality. Life isn't fair. A couple of years ago, I came across a website that allowed you to calculate how long it would take you to earn what Peyton Manning was earning at the time for playing quarterback in the NFL. I thought that'd be fun, so I, I get in there and I plug in my information, and it told me I only had to work 400 more years <laughs> to make what Peyton was making in 16 weeks for throwing a football. Now, I, I wasn't bitter about that, you know, a little piece of information, but I just thought to myself, I don't think I've got 400 years left in me. <laughs> Life isn't fair. We have to come to terms with it. Sooner or later, we, we face that reality, especially when we find out that it works against us, right? We can't, if we're honest, we can't count on the economy or the government. We can't count on our circumstances. And, and truthfully, we can't really even count on people, even the people who love us the most. People don't always treat us fairly. But at least we can count on God, right? I mean, I mean if anybody's fair, it has to be God, that if, if I live a good moral life, if I have at least good intentions in the things I do, surely at the end of everything, God's going to make it all shake out for me. He's going to tie a nice bow around it and make it all fair, right? Now, that's at least how I like to think about God. But then I come, we come to a story like this, the story of the prodigal son. And frankly, the, the story, as Jesus tells it, the picture that he paints of God, it doesn't really line up with my sense of fairness. In fact, it, it kind of confronts it. Now, now, we love, if you were here last week, we talked about the first half of the story. You're probably familiar with it either way. We love the story of the prodigal son, right? Because the point is that no one is ever so far gone that we can't turn to God to be redeemed, to be restored. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter for how long, you can turn to Jesus in faith and you can be forgiven. You, the slate is wiped clean, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. It's, it gives us hope, right? Um, but at a certain point, what we just read a minute ago, the perspective of the story changes. It changes dramatically. And we're, we're forced to come to terms with, how do I really view God? And the question for today, the question for me, as we look at this story, do, do I want God to be gracious, like what we see in the first half of the story? Or do I really want God to be fair? Because we can't have it both ways. And the answer to that question, as you answer it perhaps in your own heart, it might not be what you, the answer you want it to be. Or it might not be the answer that, that we receive when we actually turn to the Scripture. Do I want God to be gracious or do I want him to be fair? Well, let's, let's come to terms with it together here in Luke chapter 15. Okay? Now, the story begins actually way back in verse 1 with the context. 
What provoked Jesus to tell a story like this? Luke actually tells us what happened. Luke 15, verse 1, you see it with me? It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So that the good religious folks are appalled that Jesus would spend time hanging out with openly sinful people. And so Jesus tells them a story. It's a story intended for both groups, both the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees and the scribes, right? It's the same story. It's meant for both, but it's meant to illustrate for us what God's heart actually looks like. This is who God is. And the story, let me just recap the first half. If you weren't here last week, it's good to recap it anyway. The story is, Jesus tells us a story that a man had two sons. There's a father with two sons. The younger of the two sons comes to his dad one day and demands his share of the inheritance early. It's as if he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what you owe me now. It's an incredibly ungrateful, wicked thing for the son to do, but the father concedes. He divides up his wealth between the two sons. He gives the younger one what he asked for, and the younger son takes off to a faraway country where Jesus says he squanders his father's wealth on loose living, parties and prostitutes. Well, eventually the money runs out, things go bust, and the son finds himself uh, poor and enslaved. He has to hire himself out to feed pigs. He has hit absolute rock bottom, complete misery and despair, but there at his lowest point, he comes to his senses, Jesus says, and he thinks about dad. He remembers home. And if there's a sliver of hope for this young man in this whole world, then it's back home, and so he decides to get up and go home to apologize to his father, to beg his forgiveness and just make me a hired man, put me out in the fields to work. One day, perhaps, I can earn your trust back and pay you back for what I took. Well, the father sees this son coming from far off. He runs to him and embraces him. He will not hear the apology. He puts the robe around him and the sandals on his feet and the ring on his finger, and he kills the fattened calf and throws a celebration because he says, this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive again. It's an amazing story. I mean, it's, it's a story that celebrates God's grace for sinners, right? We see the father toward this wayward son that the father covers the cost of his sin. He doesn't demand a repayment. And it's news for us, good news for us, that no matter where you've been, what you've done, you, you can always come home. You can always turn to him to find redemption and restoration. But we almost forget at this stage of the story, because it's so dramatic, it's so wonderful, we almost forget that there are two sons. The focus has been on the younger son at this point, up to this point, but we find out that the older son plays a significant role in the story too. He's not just window dressing. As Jesus switches gears right there in verse 25, he tells us the other side of the story. And uh, let's remember here that the older son represents the scribes and the Pharisees. The older son, this is the good, faithful, moral, dutiful, religious person. That's who he's meant to represent here. Let's see things from his side of the story. Look with me again at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and was not willing to come in. 
Uh, The prodigal son comes home unannounced. Nobody expected his return. And it sets off this huge celebration, right? Music and dancing. I mean, it's like the whole town has probably been invited to this. Where has the older son been, though, this whole time? Jesus tells us he comes in from the field. He's been out working. He comes in after a long day of work, of taking care of his responsibilities, doing what he's supposed to do. He's probably tired. He's probably sweaty. And he stumbles upon this massive party. What is this? What's going on here? Hey, haven't you heard? Your brother came home, and your father was so overjoyed that he killed the fattened calf. He invited everybody to come and celebrate it. Now, in that moment, at the snap of a finger, um, the older son shows his true colors. He is not happy. He's not even neutral. He's furious. And this is more. This is not, he's not just being a little spoiled sport right here. All right? He is beside himself with anger, and frankly, it's, it, it, he's got a good reason to be angry. I mean, you think, think about this. Taking the whole story into account, the younger son runs away with his share of the inheritance. He is, in that moment, he's rejecting his family. He is shaming his family in that community. They'll never get their reputation back. He's rejecting his country, his faith, and he's burning all those bridges behind him, right? The older brother never expected to see his younger brother again. And good riddance, by the way, to that wicked, ungrateful punk, right? I mean, who had to take up the extra slack, the extra workload, after the younger son ran off? Jesus doesn't tell us, but it makes sense that the older brother would have to pick up the extra slack, right? And who remained faithful to the family when the younger son rips his father's heart out and runs off with it? I mean, who, who stayed faithful? The older son. He, he's the good one. He's the dependable one. And now, out of the clear blue, the younger son, you know, strolls back into town, strolls back home, and the dad prepares the fattened calf for him? Now, we don't really sense how significant the fattened calf is. It's obviously important to the story. Jesus mentions it multiple times. What does it mean? Uh, the, the fattened calf was the highest of delicacies here. This, y'all, this is not Tuesday night at Golden Corral. Kids eat free. Okay? This is not an ordinary meal that's taking place in Luke 15. This is an extravagant, a grand feast the whole village would have been there, right? You don't kill a fattened calf just because, you know, you, you want to have a, an ordinary meal at home. No, this is extravagant. And here's what the father's communicating. When the father prepares the fattened calf for this youngest son, it's the father saying, this is the greatest day of my life. If he had a daughter and this was her wedding day, perhaps there would be maybe some correlation there. You have a sense of what this is. This is the best day of my life. That's what's being communicated with this party. Now, now think about it here. If you, if you, you know, we, we kind of dig into the details of this story a little bit. When the younger son first ran off, what Jesus says is that the father divided the wealth between the sons. He didn't just pull out some money and give it to the younger son, but he went ahead and divided things up appropriately. In those days, the older son would have received a two-thirds share of the inheritance and the younger a one-thirds share. It's just the way it worked, right? So the older son walks upon this party, this party he didn't know was happening until he stumbles upon it. Whose money is dad spending on this lavish party? Mine. 
I mean, right, everything else that belongs to the father at this point, in a sense, belongs to the older son. It's got his name written on it, including the fattened calf. Whose expense? Mine. This is my stuff he's given away. Do you see why he might be upset a little bit? It gets worse. Look again at verse 28 with me. It gets worse. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look. And you see the disrespect going on here? He didn't address him as father. Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat, not a fattened calf, just a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? The older son's not just angry, he's hurt. He's hurt. You see what he's saying to his dad? For years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. When that son of yours left, I stayed. When he was out doing God knows what, I kept my responsibilities. I was faithful to the family. I would have been happy with just a little bit of recognition. I didn't need a feast. I just, just a little bit of recognition. But when that traitor comes back home with nothing to show for himself, but maybe a disease he picked up along the way, you roll out the red carpet for him and sit him on the throne. Dad, why do you love him more than me? Story gets dark in a hurry, doesn't it? And do you feel it? I'll be honest with you. I read this story. It makes me angry. I get angry on behalf of the older brother because he makes a good point, doesn't he? I mean, you almost hear the words screaming off the page. Dad, it's not fair. And he's right. It's not fair. He's absolutely right. Now, what's the father going to do at this point of the story? He's kind of painted into a corner. I mean, he, he just welcomed back one lost son who, who may have been dead for all they knew. He, he finally receives him back, and now he's at risk of losing the other one. What's, he, what's the father going to say to make all this right? Uh, Y'all, I love the father's response here. Look at verse 31. He's out there pleading with this older son of his, and he said to him, 31, he says, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost, and he has been found. This is such a tender, loving response. The older son is, is humiliating his father refusing to go into the party, refusing to even call him by name. He just says, look, this is humiliating. And yet the father doesn't return evil for evil here. He's just, he's tender with his child. But you notice this, the father does not deal in terms of fairness right here. He's not talking about fairness. He's talking about grace, which makes all the difference in the world. And we think about how this story kind of comes home to our own heart. We mentioned this last week. The prodigal son story is a story about us. It's meant, when we, when we see what's going on in this story, it's, it's meant to, uh, to resonate with our hearts. We're meant to see ourselves in the story. And we can, we, I mean, we can identify with the prodigal son, the younger son, right? 
Because we know, if we're honest with our own hearts, we know that we are sinners. We know we're in need of grace. We've all run away from God in our sin, and we have need to be brought back home. But many of us, me included, we can also identify with the older son. Maybe even more so. For me, more so. Because remember who the older son represents. This is the good, faithful, church-going, religious person. That's who it is. That's, and and for, for a lot of us, that's us, right? I mean, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were. By all accounts, half of, the, half of this group that Jesus is telling this story to, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the closest people to God. Everything about their life was very rigid, very disciplined, seemingly very devoted. This is the older son, and you and I might find ourselves agreeing with the argument here when the older son points out the unfairness of the situation. Man, I get it. I relate. If I were somehow dropped into this story, I'd probably be taking his side. It's true. It's right. It's not fair. Hope I made a good case for that. Because now we've got to tear it down. Right? Here, here's the truth. Here's the truth. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear. The older son is every bit as lost as his younger brother was. Now, on the surface, it doesn't appear that way. Because on the surface, we look at it, and, and there, there's really no comparison. These two brothers look entirely different. They act entirely differently. But the truth is, neither son, the younger nor the older, neither of them really had relationship with their father. And in context of the larger story, neither of these groups of people, the ultra-religious or the ultra-sinful, neither of them really knew the heart of God and knew God in a saving kind of way. And so it appears that the older son has done everything right, everything down to the T, he's done it right. But in his heart, we find out in his heart, he was self-righteous. And y'all, that is perhaps the greatest threat to church people because self-righteousness often creeps in unnoticed and then it undermines everything Jesus is about. Self-righteousness is for you and me perhaps the greatest threat because it creeps in. Often we don't see it or recognize it and yet it undermines everything that Jesus is really about. See, see, the good news of the gospel, we talk about this every Sunday, the good news of the gospel is that we are unrighteous. There's nothing that we can do about it. doesn't sound like good news, but the good news is that God, because he loves us, God, because he's merciful, he takes his own righteousness, which is perfect, and he credits it to us. That when we turn to Jesus in faith, when we trust him, his goodness, his righteousness is put into our account as if we earned it, as if we did it, although we never could. Right? That's the amazing grace that we sing about. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. All we deserve is death and punishment for our sin. But instead, we get grace and life because God delights to account his righteousness to us. Right? It's yours by faith. Um, but see, self-righteousness is exactly what it sounds like. That you and I, perhaps we get on the self-plan. That somehow we might convince ourselves that, that it's not his goodness that saves me, it's mine. And I can be good enough. I can try hard enough. I can be faithful enough and dutiful enough. I can give enough money. I can keep up appearances well enough that I can achieve what God requires of me, and then he'll have to bless me, because look what I've done. That's what self-righteousness is, ultimately. And it's possible that, that you and I, we can be on that plan, we can have that mentality, 
and really not even see it, because for some of us it's very hard to see. Um, so let, let's look at two indicators here. There are lots of problems with the older son in this story. Two things really jump out at me that I want us to discuss, because I think there are two things that we might actually find in our own hearts if we're willing to look. And, um, and in that case, we've, we've got we've to come to terms that we've got to deal with them. Okay? Two problems that the older son had that ruined him, even though he probably couldn't see it. All right? The first problem is entitlement. His first problem was entitlement. Entitlement says, I deserve a certain level of treatment because of who I am and because of what I've done. I deserve to be treated a certain way because of who I am and what I've done. You remember what the older son's argument was with his father? He said, all these years I have served you. That word serve, as Luke records it in Greek, it's the, the root word of serve is actually slave. And we get an idea, an indication of what he's actually saying here. All these years I've slaved for you as if it was such a burden. And I've never neglected a command of yours. Now, can that possibly be true? Have you ever known a child that never disobeyed their parents? There is no such child. What's the, what is the, the older son doing right here? He's playing up his self-righteousness. He's exaggerating every point to try to make his case. Ah, it's been so difficult under your tyranny, Dad, but I've slaved for you all these years, and I never did anything wrong. I never disobeyed you, and I'm still waiting on my reward. Where's my party? You see what he's doing? He's exaggerating everything to try to paint himself in the, in the greatest possible light, and this is what entitlement produces. This is what entitlement does. I deserve because look at all I've done. I deserve because look at who I am. And y'all, when, when self-righteous people talk to God, when we speak back to God, this is the kind of stuff we say. Now, you would maybe would never say this out loud, but this is the kind of stuff we say. We say, God, don't you know how, how long I've been going to church and how faithful I've been and how much money I've given to that church or how much money I've given to charity and how many times I've served in the preschool and, you know, I went, I went on that, did that mission project last year and went on that mission trip. And, uh, you know, God, don't you know how many 5Ks for heart disease I've walked? You know, I, I could have run with a bad crowd in college, but I didn't. And I could have had a lot more fun, but I didn't. And my, you know, my neighbor down the street cheated on his wife. I'd never do that. I don't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't hang out with girls that do. And so, God, because of all the good things I've done, you owe me. You owe me. I should be recognized. I should be rewarded for the way I've lived. But when God doesn't give us what we think we deserve, when things don't go as well for me as I think they ought, I get angry, I get bitter, and I complain against him. I don't want to call him father anymore. I just want to say, look, here's what I've done. Where's my party? God's not holding up his end of the bargain. God's not doing what he's supposed to do for me. He's not fair. See, because the older son feels entitled to what's fair, he makes sure that the father sees the contrast. Here's all the good I've done, and look at this son of yours. You know, he doesn't even call him his brother. He's divorced himself entirely from this brother of his. He's not his brother anymore. When this son of yours returns... Here's what he's got to show for himself. Look what I've got to show for myself. Okay. Um, it's, it's what's fair. But you see the father's response. 
The father's response to this entitlement here. It has nothing to do with fairness. God speaks only of relationship right here. You see, he says, my son, so tender. He says, my child, you have always been with me. All that's mine is yours. You never lacked for anything. I mean, you see what God is saying? God says to the entitled person, if, if I have this self-righteousness in my heart, it's like God is looking at me and saying, Kyle, you've always had me. I've never held out on you. I've never dishonored you. You've always had my love and my provision. This party doesn't change any of that. He's speaking about relationship. He's not speaking about fairness. See what God prioritizes in this story? See, God's desire, y'all, we ought to know this, but I just fall into this trap all the time. God's desire is not that you would do a lot of good things and thereby earn his favor. That somehow you can climb the ladder up to him by doing enough good. That's not God's plan for us. God's heart ultimately is that you would know him and be known by him. To have a relationship with him. And y'all, that relationship is an end in itself. Can I say that again? To have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is an end in itself. There's nothing more we should seek. There's nothing more ultimately that we need. The entitlement says, God, yeah, I'm glad to have you, but I really want some stuff to go along with it because that's what I deserve. And God in this story says, no, you've always had me. All that's mine is yours. That's never changed. And for the, the entitled person, of course, that's, that's, that's not enough. Jesus is not enough. See, the older son wasn't motivated by love and relationship. He was motivated by reward and recognition. And when he didn't get what he thought he deserved, he exploded. Uh, if, y'all, if the Christian life becomes a joyless burden, if I find myself getting angry because I haven't received what I think I deserve, um, it's like me saying, God, you're not enough for me. Jesus, you're not enough for me. I'm entitled to more. God owes me more. God owes me better. And y'all, if, if, with that kind of attitude, you and I can come to church every single Sunday and yet be far away from God and miss relationship with God because it's not about fairness for him, is it? It's about relationship. It's about having him and being known by him. This was the Pharisees' problem. They, they were religious in every way, but they were lost. They didn't know God. They were very devoted but they had no relationship to speak of. So the older son was entitled. That's his first problem. It could be a problem for you and me. And then secondly, two problems, right? The second problem is he's ungracious. He's entitled and he's ungracious. The, the older son is beside himself with rage at this homecoming. The father is beside himself with joy. What's the difference? They're looking at the same event. They're looking at the same thing, and yet they're coming at it from two totally different perspectives and responses here. One is rage and anger, the other joy. What's the difference? Well, the older son, of course, he's looking through the lens of fairness, whereas the father is looking through the lens of grace, and it makes all the difference. You notice the last thing the father says in this story? He says, you've always been with me. All that's mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead, 
but has come to life again. You notice that the older son no longer calls him his brother. This son of yours. You notice how the father turns it back around on him? This brother of yours. He says, no, no, no. He's back. He's in. All right. Um, but he says we had to celebrate. The father in this story does not say we ought to celebrate. I thought it was a good idea to celebrate. You know, the fattened calf was nearing its expiration date, and I feel like, you know, what a waste it would be if we didn't celebrate. No, 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 no. We had to celebrate. Compulsion. As if we have no other choice. You know, God's heart, listen, God's heart is hardwired for grace. The older son is trying to bring out the scales of fairness. And of course, if we're going to put things on the scale then there is no comparison. One's obviously better than the other. The older son's faithful. The younger son's ruined everything, right? But with God, there are no scales here. When it comes to grace, grace has no scales because God's grace is free. It's unconditional. It, in, 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 her, in terms of God's grace, it doesn't matter how deep the hole you've dug yourself into because his grace redeems you all the same. The older son can't handle it. He can't handle grace. And therefore, he refuses to go in and celebrate it. The bottom line is he didn't, he didn't have his father's heart. He didn't share his father's heart. That's why he couldn't see things from his father's perspective. Now, can we be this way? Can we be ungracious? Um, that we would enjoy the grace God's given to us, but we will not celebrate it for certain other people. Um, uh, maybe somebody, let me give you two quick scenarios here. Maybe somebody struggles with an addiction but they come to Jesus, they receive forgiveness, they get saved, they get baptized. And yet maybe there are some of us in this room, we would watch something like that unfold, and in our hearts we would say, we'll see. Give it a few months, we'll see. Refuse to celebrate. Uh, maybe, and you've, you've probably heard a story like this before, there's, a, there's an old man on his deathbed, and he's lived a rough life. He was a philandering husband. He was an abusive father. But in his final days, he hears the gospel, the good news of God's grace through Jesus, and he receives it, and he is saved. And there might be some of us who look at a situation like that and say, well, isn't that convenient? You live however you want, just skate on in at the last minute. I've worked hard my whole life. I've been good my whole life. That guy gets a free pass? Hmm. You know, it's, it's easy for us to be ungracious, to refuse to celebrate, especially when we look at a person who we just don't, we don't think they deserve it. We don't think they measure up. You notice that the older brothers, what, what's so hard for him, it's not only that his younger brother gets grace. That's bad enough in his estimation. It's that he gets the grace that he thought he deserved. He gets the party that he thought he deserved. It's like the younger brother's taking it from him and he can't handle it, right? There's no grace in his heart. He can't be happy for this homecoming. He can't celebrate because it's not right. It's not fair, right? He's ungracious, and you and I can fall into that same trap. Y'all, grace, the grace of God is the most wonderful thing in the world. It's the only reason any of us are here right now. I mean, apart from grace, we have no hope at all, and yet we as Christians, we can harden ourselves against it and refuse to celebrate it. The older son rebukes his father for being gracious. It's not just distasteful to me, it's wrong. You shouldn't do it. 
Y'all, that's what the Pharisees were doing with, with Jesus all throughout his ministry. I mean, at every turn, you see Jesus touching lepers, healing sinners, doing things on the Sabbath that you shouldn't, you know, all these kind of things. And the Pharisees are just rebuking him at every turn. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be that way. God wouldn't do that. You must be from Satan. God wouldn't forgive that kind of person. I mean, they just couldn't handle it because they didn't know what grace really was. And it proved that they didn't know who God really was. They didn't know him. And that's what made them lost. The, the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day, by and large, they were serving a God of their own making. Very diligently, very devotedly. But it was a God of their own making, a God who, who only valued the keeping of the rules and who did not value the human heart so as to be merciful to us when we didn't deserve it. They didn't understand grace. And so Jesus, listen, Jesus is pleading with them in this story. Jesus is not mocking them. He's pleading with them. Drop your self-made righteousness. Drop your self-made idea of fairness and embrace instead the God of grace. God doesn't work the way you think he works or the way you wish he would work. He's a God of mercy. You've got to empty your hands of all the good things you think you've done. Therefore, you deserve. You've got to empty that stuff out and you've got to receive what I came to do for you instead. That's the word of Jesus here. He's pleading with them. And that's my, that's my encouragement for us today. For me, I need to hear this. It's, it's hard to see ourselves sometimes as the older son because if you're good, if you're moral, at least in your own estimation, you, you can forget your need for grace. You forget that you were that bad to begin with. You don't think of yourself that way. And instead, you just look down on others who don't measure up. It's hard for us sometimes to look in the mirror and see it. And so we're always at risk, y'all, of valuing duty over relationship. As if, there's a, if, as if there's meant to be a separation between the two. There's not. We are meant to be dutiful, obedient toward God, but it's only in the context of relationship, not of, of earning or of entitlement. We're always at risk of serving God in our own minds and yet missing his heart at the same time. Doing everything we think he wants us to do and missing out on him. And so let me encourage you here as to how this story ends I don't know if you've ever noticed it before. Maybe you noticed it today. The story doesn't really end. It's always frustrated me that, that Jesus doesn't tie the story together in a nice way. Like, there, there's no resolution. The younger son's story, in a sense, resolves. He's forgiven. He's restored. He comes in. He celebrates. But the older son, no. The father pleads with him. The father explains his grace to this older son. And then the story's over. Did he ever come in? Did he run away and leave? Jesus doesn't tell us. And y'all, that's, that's on purpose. That, that Luke didn't fall asleep toward the end of the story and forget to write the ending for us. It's intentional. Why does, not, why, why does the story not resolve? Well, Jesus is telling the Pharisees in this moment that the door is open for you. The party is ongoing. The music is still playing. The, the light is on, and I'm going to leave it on. And, and, and as long as a person like me, a person like you, as long as we draw breath on this earth, then the door for us is open. Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees, drop your self-made religion in favor of relationship with God, a God of grace. You need this grace every bit as much as the younger brother does. The religious person needs it just as much as the sinner does. We all need it the same and so Jesus says, the door is open for you. 
The story is yet unwritten. The ending is unresolved because you can always come in. You can always come home. You can always receive God's grace and join the celebration. Some of us need to hear that today. You're holding on to what you think you deserve because of all you've done. And Jesus' message to you is, you are not nearly as good as you think you are, Kyle York. You need the same grace that that guy down there needs. The guy you look down on, you need it too, just like he does. And you know what? When a guy like me, a self-righteous person like me, maybe like you, when we walk through that door, we experience the same joy. It's not a lesser joy. It's not a greater party for the younger son than it is for the older. If he's willing to enter in, it's the party that celebrates the Father's grace. The party's not really for the son, y'all. It's in honor of the Father, because the party is heaven. And in heaven, you and I are not going to pat each other on the back for finding our way in. We're going to stare in awesome, continual, eternal delight. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who came for us, that we might enter into his joy forever. The door's open for you today. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, this, is, uh, this, is, this part of the story is so much harder for me because I, I just, I, this is what I am. I like to think that I'm good enough. Um, or at least that I could be good enough if I just tried a little harder. Lord, would you, would you destroy that thought in my heart, in our hearts today? There's nothing good we have done or could do. It's all grace. And Father, if, if we find in our own hearts this morning, especially as we look at this story, if we find in our own hearts that we desire fairness more than grace, Lord, would you correct us? Would you bring us to repentance? You're not fair. And we should be so glad. We will not get what's fair. And we should be so glad. We will get grace instead if we turn to Jesus in faith. Let it, let it be, Lord, that today... Maybe some of us who are very, very strong, very diligent, very devoted, maybe we'd recognize that our hearts are actually very hard and that we've, we've never entered into your presence, that we've never delighted in relationship with you as an end in itself. Lord, help us to see it today. Help me to see it. And Father, I, I, I pray for us that, that there would be joy this may be a very hard message for us to hear, but there will be joy because we, we, we resolve, in this case, the, the ending of the story, which is unresolved, that, that we would look to you and say, um, I receive not what's fair, but I receive what you delight to give. I want to come in. I want to celebrate. We would enter into your joy today. Father, uh, show us that our, we can be lost in our goodness, not just lost in our badness. The only hope we ever have is Jesus. And so let us turn to him with all our hearts this morning, and let's glorify him for all he's done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.